and here we are. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to RPG R&D. I am excited for today's topics. Uh, I am Just Skyer. I am one of your co-hosts, along with my co-host, Craig Campbell. Hello. And our special, our special <laughs> guest co-host, Evan Torner. Hi. Uh, and I usually start off by saying, hey, Craig, do you want to explain to our audience what RPG R&D is all about? Sure. And um, I'm going to I'm going to change it up and ask Evan real quick. Could you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do in the world of uh, tabletop role playing games? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, again, I'm Evan Torner, and in my day job, I'm a professor of German and film. But I I also uh, teach teach games, right? Uh, and uh, through a thing called the UC Game Lab, which is a collection of materials and events and um, and various cool things that we, we do at University of Cincinnati. And I've been in the tabletop space since 1991, so I guess 30 years. Uh, but I started running conventions, uh, running at conventions in junior high. I adapted a, a red wall, the old Brian Jake's red wall to, uh, to GURPS. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I, I was like, again, 13, 14 at the time and ran it for a bunch of 30 year olds and they seemed to have a good time and, and I kept getting invited back. So uh, I, was, I was sort of hooked in the convention scene very, very early on. And that let me uh, become one of the co-founders of Games on Demand, uh, which is an organization that runs uh, various indie games across different conventions. It's kind of our way of hacking large conventions so we can make our small convention within a large convention. Um, we were running LARPs that were frustratingly uh, too unwieldy in, in 2014 at Gen Con. And so we created the Golden Cobra Challenge, uh, Jason Morningstar, uh, Strix Beltran, Cat Jones, Emily Kerboss, and myself. So we sort of said we need we need a, a design space that's going to make these smaller LARPs happen. So we invented the Golden Cobra Challenge to address that. Uh, same year, I co-founded a journal called Analog Game Studies, which publishes um, you know academic articles on board and RPG games. And and again, all of this comes from the fact that I just really like game mastering, and uh, and and it, you know in sort of the dev space, I've been um really doing published material since 2012 mostly involved with the danish uh tabletop uh convention festival and uh and so my first scenario to, uh, it was called metropolis so it was based off the german film metropolis and uh i got nominated for some award everyone thought it was really weird but it it it, it, it turned some <laughs> wheels in the community and i kept wanting to go back and i it, you know I, I i got my first real auto award here i got my my golden penguin right here uh, i love that yeah That's isn't terrific. it great you, you you get it's like it's like the the academy award for for rpgs so this is for uh uh a game i wrote called save some light for me which is um uh like a, a polyamorous he-man kind of game is what I how I describe it, but it's it, it very very yeah it's very much uh, my kind of like you know gay uh, <laughs> a treatise on on my childhood and and that that sort of thing it goes over well at festival. I'm really happy to to have been a part there in 2019 before everything collapsed in 2020 and everything went online. So. Um, that was that was that was a real real honor to be able to go and and be in Denmark before before 2020. 
Um, that, that's a summary of who I am, right? It is, I, I, I'm in the academic space. I'm in, I would say, the experimental and indie RPG space. And I like organizing mainly so I can game master, right? <laughs> Self-serving. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm sorry, but it really is about getting me players. <laughs> so uh, a, a lot of great um, things that you're involved in. So listeners, uh, check them out. Like, just go dig that stuff up, the Golden Cobra and uh, the magazine and so forth. Um, for the podcast, this the stream, uh, both of them, really, um, we are... We, we, we hit on three topics, uh, one that's a GMing topic, one that's kind of geared toward game design, and then uh, what we call the potpourri, which is just like some other thing, um, and we'll get to that eventually. To start with, we're going to kick off with uh, GMing, and we're talking about adapting modules to your homebrew. A lot of people, a lot of GMs like to uh, create their own world. Um, and, uh, especially when you're younger and you have a lot of, a lot more free time, you know, it's just like, Oh, I'm going to build a world. This is wonderful. But there's a lot of great, um, material that's out there that's produced for, um, other campaign settings that are, you know, f- like full, full book and multi-book sometimes campaign settings, as well as just, um, world building and, um, interesting things that are built for uh, individual adventures or modules and uh, let's talk a little bit about like what you've done with some of those things in the past where you've ported them over into games of yours where you've uh, what kind of pitfalls you've run into um, uh, uh, what what are some tips on um, integrating something that's kind of made for something else into your little brainchild yeah, this is this is a great topic uh, Craig and Jess, I really am happy to talk about this because uh, you know uh, um, the the old for- I will and I'll say it's the old forge theory of system matters uh, is is half right right where where it does it does matter that you know what mechanics you have going on but actually um, there we do have kind of cultural and even physiological responses to to artwork. To certain world building tropes right they, they, they activate our fantasies and we're just like I, I have to be there but this you know <laughs> these rules say that 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 this this thing has 10 hit points right I mean, I mean and, and so you're you're sort of you know stuck there with with a authoritative source an rpg book telling you that this this uh thing comes in a package and how do you separate it from that package um one thing that Avery Alder actually did back in the day was uh, literally hacking games where you, 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 you take a bunch of photocopies of games and you just, with scissors, you, you cut them apart and paste them. And so do you like an art piece of artwork over here? Well, just cut it out and put it in your game, right? I mean, literally uh, cutting and pasting um, games, but, um, you know, in, in, um, you know, practical terms, most of our world building comes from us, you know, kit bashing various things that we like of various genres all together and then say, okay, well, what's the biology of this place? You know, we, we often aren't, aren't starting with bacteria and plants. We're often starting with, okay, we need a, a cool mountain that has like a bridge across it. You know, I'm thinking like Shadows of the Colossus, right? A lonely bridge, long lonely bridge where you can ride your horse dramatically across. Well, that, what, you know, where does that come from, right? Does that really come from you're building a world or are you building a bridge that you'd really like to cross? Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's, um, you know, that 
so I think first of all is being really honest about yourself. What is the appeal of this thing? And does it matter that it has any kind of narrative or world building coherence? And then second, um, you know, how much of the stats um, in a specific system tell a story about this thing and how much of that story, you know, you want to accept or ignore. Um, with Save Some Light for me, for example, like I said, it was, it was my sort of He-Man setting, um, but mostly the, the characters are all ridiculous, right? So you've got like a, a unicorn who's also riding on top of a unicorn. You've got a, <laughs> um, an asexual cuddle wolf who's easy is the wolf who like wolf guy who likes cuddling. I say, I shouldn't say he, they're all, they, they, they're all non-binary characters. Um, we have, you know, Johnny Comet, who is this really mysterious figure uh, with a mysterious past. And that's literally like, you know, on, his character, on their character sheet, you know, a mysterious figure. You, know, you, <laughs> you like, but part of your job is just being mysterious, right? So the, the um, but a lot of that material came from, you know, me looking at action figures and whatnot and trying to, like, de- uh, defranchise my action figures, right? So I've got all these Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and they look like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. How can I make them something else, have different names, come from different worlds, right? How can I, how can I uh, take, you know, these pieces of plastic and make them my own? And that's a sort of starting gesture is, is where emotionally do you, do you want uh, these, these characters or these tropes or these something to, to, to go in your in your RPG and how much is it already possessed by this, this limiting thing, which is someone else's book, someone else's movie, someone else's creation. Um, and it, because it, you know, because ideas are cheap and implementation is expensive. I want, I want everybody to know that, you know, if someone says, Oh, they stole my idea. I'm like, yeah, okay. Adaptation happens all the time, whatever, it, you know, how, how does, how does your thing look? What is your, you know, uh, implementation or your final product do with that idea? Right. That's, that's really the, the, the spark. So if you, if you have this idea for a campaign world, that has a really long bridge in it, go for it. Okay. You've got the, you've got your long bridge, um, I, I don't know why I'm obsessed with the shadow of the Colossus. Stuck on a long bridge. Yeah, but, 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 Sounds but, like somebody wants to put a long bridge in their campaign. Exactly. Or their it's game. like, where, where do you want to? Do you want to put the long bridge in your game? Yes, mm -hmm. maybe. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I've got um, a game I'm working on, which has like sort of 20 characters in 20 different locations, just like a fighting game, because it's based off of fighting games, right? And you know, each one, I'm really like, you know, what's where's this? Uh, where is this gonna be? And and what am I really drawing on for this location? And later on, I kind of begin to suture them together. Okay, there's a there's a floating glacier palace and a flying palace. Are the palaces related? Were they created by the same architect? You know, ask these kinds of questions. But again, you're always like still in this kind of playground mode where where you know you're you're seeing different but still similar objects and you're asking questions about them. And, and then eventually you can, you can put mechanics to that. But I think once you've answered some of the major questions about w why these elements are there, um, you, you know, you, you're, you're, you're most of the way there in, in adapting your material to whatever you want. And then the mechanics is like the last leg of the journey rather than the initial leg of the journey. I guess that's my answer.
That's, you you said it a lot smarter than I would have. So <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm glad that you mentioned Avery Alder because like one of her games, The Quiet Year, is like she just mentioned even I think maybe today or yesterday that a lot of people adapt it. They they take that as a world building game to lead up into a campaign of a of a different system, um, and that's even happening with uh, the the podcast The Adventure Zone. Um, right. So like that is something that happens a lot. Um, and you also mentioned like this this very playground mentality. I think we all have that experience of taking our our action figures or our Barbies or whatever. And, you know, you have Barbie's name is Barbie. <sighs> I don't want her to be named Barbie. Yes. I, she is going to be something else and she is going to play with my tiny little Esmeralda from the Hunchback of Notre Dame figurine. Uh, we are, I'm going to make a story with these characters that you know, I'm going to make them the way I want them to be. And even like that idea of like, I want the really long bridge in my story. I want the floating palace. There is something so fun about building a world around those fun scenes that you can't do when you're writing like a book with a book things you know you have to have an intern like you have to have a, a narrative that makes sense and the coolness factor is secondary to the the logic whereas when you're playing a game often that players will often ignore logic if they get to do cool things in cool places um i, I just think that's a fun thing you can do um and i i do it a lot as well like i will read a module i really like pathfinder modules i really like their adventure paths and um i i have often taken like the first book or two of them and then have just gone completely off the rails of the adventure path so and here's some practical advice so my players feel like they have a stake in the story i tie in their backgrounds i tie them to those pre-existing characters for example or pre-existing events in the adventure paths um, because when you just play a module, unless you give your characters a background that's already grounded within the realm of the story, which isn't that fun because they can't make their own at that point, the stakes might not really matter to the idea for their character. A lot of that you can smooth over in an event, in a session zero, but uh, you gotta, you gotta tailor it. Even if you are just planning on running a module, you do have to tailor it in some way. So all of this advice would apply. Yeah, I, I think there is there is a chemistry between the characters and the objects. And you have to kind of, again, find that chemistry. Uh, and and it may be a weird thing where, where, where you're sort of fanficking it, like Barbie reacting to, mm -hmm. <laughs> to, to the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Okay, what's this like? But, you know, it, it's actually going to feel you know, in your tabletop campaign, much more organic if you are, you know, you know, kind of building off of that, those reactions. You know, one, one system I really admire for, for its, its kind of guts on this front is Tenra Bansho Zero. I don't know if you know about that one. Uh, it's a uh, Japanese system from the 90s that was brought out um, uh, by Kotodama Heavy Industries last, uh, maybe a decade ago or so. And they actually have a table that when an NPC shows up, it, <laughs> you have a table to, to tell you how you react to the NPC or like your initial impression of that NPC. And I just think that's brilliant. 
<laughs> because it's, it's it's like you you have this involuntary first impression, which means sometimes that's right, and then the GM can double down on that impulse, right? So without any world building happening, you just go from encounter, boom, let's let's create the chemistry there. But then there's also the the subversion effect, which is much better. You have your initial impression of that character, but just like a good anime, you get between you know in the layers of that character and discover they're much deeper than that first impression. And that's satisfying, right? But it's it's kind of weird to say, well, okay, this game is now going to tell you how your character feels about this world element. But um, I'm, I'm increasingly of the opinion and I've written things like this as well, that, you know, this, this telling players explicitly, here is, <laughs> here is the thing. And, and here's, we, we, we want this sort of emotional reaction. So find a way to have that emotional reaction is actually better than, than trying to trick them into having an emotional reaction. Okay. What I've done you're, is, uh, you're muted. Oh. <laughs> Okay, what I've done, as the two of you have been talking, is I've been hacking um, your uh, discussion, um, which because it, it hit on a lot of theory and a lot of like just like the ideas of breaking things down and figuring things out um, and examining everything and, um, and, and made some, uh, some points about some, some solutions, some actual like ways to implement or just th- a, a, a little more active ways to think about like what you can do with these things. And one of the things I hit on was um, speaking to Evan's comment about the, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, like <laughs> there's, you can reskin the superficial. Um, so, uh, to speak to an adventure, if you wanted to, if you, if you love the, t- the tomb of horrors, um, the classic, yes. you know, meat grinder character <laughs> killer, um, from D and D's past, like you can have that thing happen and there's there's a certain segment of the of the gaming population that has played it and there's certain ones that know about certain rooms and certain aspects of the tomb so maybe you get rid of some of the things like the 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 demon mouth that you put your hand in you know everybody kind of knows about that one um don't use a sararak the the demi lich have something else be kind of behind everything maybe don't have exactly three entrances with two of them being false character killers um you know do something a little differently for getting into the tomb but then you can still use a lot of what's in the tomb because you've taken the superficial recognizable parts and turned them into something else and 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 you're left with all the really great guts of these other things that just don't have the notoriety um that uh you know the 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 demon that you put your hand in his mouth um and then I kind of looked at it different ways of like when you've, if you've got a hole, you could take the thing and just drop it in wholesale. There's nothing that says you can't just have, um, you know, like if, if your players are going to go along with it, there's nothing that says you can't have this cool NPC from an adventure module get dropped right into the story. And like it, the character has the same name and they have more or less the same attributes and capabilities. It just maybe for a different system, if that's what you're doing. Um, because it's you know you're dealing with with role-playing games and it's fantasy and it's science fiction and it's all fake phony baloney made up um you know what's to say there isn't another oh god i'm gonna say it drizzt warden um in in some other world if that's the character that you really want to see played you know brought in as an npc to kind of spark the players into doing something if the players like you know if that if that's going to get them moving and get them excited about something um you can also take the object or the the, the component from the adventure, um, or other or other uh, world 
and um, kind of find a way to fit it into your world's history. Um, morph it and stuff so that it hits the, the geography or the politics of the game that you've created. You can have this, like if, if you've got a module that has this mystical floating castle, um, like, well, is that castle part of, you know, is, is there a kingdom in your realm, in your world, that would be appropriate to have a floating castle? Um, a kingdom of high, high magic. Um, or a kingdom that, you know, perhaps in its history has had its castle laid siege too many times, and they finally said, enough of that noise, and they made their <laughs> castle float. Um, and so you can, you can just kind of, you know, give it a reason to exist in your world. Um, yeah. And just then... To, to interject slightly, Final mm-hmm. Fantasy always finds a way to include Sid and the airship. Always. Right. Uh, and the, the flip side of that is to let the imported thing influence your world. Um, you don't have to mold it into the history, geography, or politics of your world. You can um, let the thing come in and actually change your world, perhaps in drastic ways in the moment. Um, you know, speaking to the, the floating castle, if the world that you've described and built has kind of these small keeps and like border towns and all of a sudden there's this giant majestic floating <laughs> castle, how does that change the landscape of the world? Um, you might find something in a module or another campaign setting book that you can insert in, and that will shake things up and 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 make the make the uh, the game dynamic, uh, and make the world dynamic because the world the world changes right. Like the ideal um, long term goal of of any GM when you're running a a, a game where that has a, a strong world building component where the characters are going around to different places and discovering different things and. Um, is to see their to see to see things affect the world, whether it be them or kingdoms or dragons or sorcerers or whatever, um, and to see the world change so that you don't get to the end of the campaign and it's like, oh, it's the exact same balance of power we had before, and you know the bandit kingdoms are still under the boot of so and so, and like there's still you know giants in this uh, 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 in in this mountain range, even though there was a gigantic war with the dwarves there, <laughs> the giants somehow came out just fine, and they're just kind of still hanging around. Um, so that was just some thoughts about uh, the, just different ways to implement all of that. And like, there's really ultimately what I think what it comes down to is there's really no wrong way to do it. Um, and you can do you know do borrow different things and in, implement them in different ways to keep the players guessing. Yeah, I, I think uh, RPGs are a scavenger medium, right? This is sort of as opposed to opera or something where you'll, you'll have an absolutely rarefied moment that you have to have like scenery, line up with lighting, line up with 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 uh, all of these different elements. And we don't care about that. We are just talking at a table and with a t- yeah. it's a dice and creating creating images in our heads. And, and at that point, then we can really scavenge from wherever we want to. And we should be scavenging from places we care about uh, because then that matter then it matters uh, to us and 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 so that 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 means you know the fiction you consume will find its way into into your RPG and uh, that that that's a good thing yeah I love that scavenger medium <laughs> I mean I, I scavenge all the time I I actually I I am playing I don't I have only been playing D&D online it's like one of the only games I, I, the tabletop is already set up for me. Um, and I have three books open here because I'm using the map for one and a character from another. 
and some items from a different one. Um, and none of it is what is actually written down in the book. I just like the pictures. <laughs> That's what I'm using. So respect. I, I... <laughs> oh, shall we? Shall we shift gears? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Um, all right, uh, Jess. What's up next? We are going to be talking about editing as a game design topic and um editing is very near and dear to my heart because i am an editor even though editing my own work is very hard i have edited other people's works as well and i'm an english teacher so half of the stuff i teach for writing is how to edit uh and this is just so so important as a topic i think we even mentioned it (laughs) i think we've mentioned it a couple times before in our game design sections yep um because that's this is the this is the polish this is where you're putting the shine on things it's a big component of of game design it comes you know part way through the process um but it's uh uh it's a, it's a it's a it's an important component and just a quick note for for you know burgeoning um rpg designers out there there's kind of three generally accepted levels of editing um in when it comes to rpgs there's the deepest dive for editing is called, uh, often referred to as developmental editing which is um goes to like the editor looking to see are you presenting the information in the correct order um is all you know does it read well as a what is you know an rpg uh, book is essentially an ins- instruction manual so it's looking at how all the information is presented is it clear um, is it does it all is it all intuitive does it make sense like the, the the developmental editor might reorder sentences reorder paragraphs move whole sections around make sure that concept a is introduced before it's you know explained in great detail um, later you don't suddenly dive into something you don't really uh, understand until you read the definition of it a, a page later that's no good um, that sort of editing then copy editing is what we you know you usually think of as editing where it's going through making sure grammar punctuation capitalization um the copy editor might also uh, suggest like completely rewriting sentences or um, maybe um reorganizing a paragraph for clarity um um but less so but more so for just like reading clarity and and less so for like is this information presented correctly for a game uh and then the the last round that sort of happens um is uh, what's referred to as proofreading, and it's really kind of a copy edit again, but it happens after the the product has been laid out because um, your layout person, if, if that's you or whoever else it is, is not perfect, and it's entirely possible that, the, that they may um, uh, accidentally erase a word or part of a word or um, shift something around kind of the wrong way or they go to paste a piece in and it ends up in the wrong spot or um, and it's also a second chance to just kind of pick up copy editing issues um, but it, it's, it's important to have that final look and that's what that's what proofreading is and that it, it is like incredibly important I teach high school journalism and the amount of times we have found something on the front page in a headline after printing, I, I it is it's so frustrating um, because it, it seems like no matter how many eyes you get on a project, you're going to have someone's going to miss something. It's like the more words you have, the bigger chance there is for something to be lost in the sauce. Um, but unfortunately, people look at that and they see it as a mark of unprofessionalism. 
And uh, that's probably not the face you want to present as a game designer. You want to look like you know what you're doing. You want to look like you you actually looked over your stuff and <laughs> that, you know, you didn't just go, and, and although I have blood and put stuff out there, um, I, I don't sell it for a bunch of money. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, I specialize in copy editing. Um, and part of that, too, because you can't just, like, go and make everything 100% grammatically correct. Because if you do that, like, by Strunk and White or whatever, uh, you're, you might end up... If I did that with Moonpunk and I made everything 100% grammatically correct, and that it would just sound off. Because sometimes tone has to go in the editing... You know, you have to think about it as as a full product, not just in these little bitty words and pieces. What I'm getting at is that you're playing Tetris, and if you mess up one line along the way, you're gonna have to do a lot of cleanup later too. I mean, it's there's a lot going on when it comes to the editing process. I'm gonna stop talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> Strong feelings. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I mean, I, I, as an English teacher, it's just ugh. yeah. Uh, I've got a, I got a couple of things to say on this front. Um, one with with uh, again when you have you have the many eyes issue, I find uh, and again I I've done some editing work. I'll talk a little bit about that, but uh, the, the many eyes effect is actually a bystander effect for copy, which is to say if there are two people or even one person who are responsible for that copy. Um, like, and again, I know, I know people who, you know, kickstart something and then crowdsource the editing, but then it means that no one is responsible for, for, the, for the, you know, because everyone is theoretically looking at it, which actually allows you to make a pretty large error that everyone will miss because other, other people think that someone else will catch it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's, uh, you know, so, so it's actually good to have a clear controlled group of people who are editors who whose job it is to uh, catch certain mistakes so that they really do honestly comb the text with a fine tooth comb but of course as you already mentioned the text is rarely final and that's the issue right you, when you're like okay this is the really really actually final 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 draft Final. Copy of final, final copy. <laughs> exactly uh, on your desktop, and 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 then you you know and 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 maybe you have like comments from other people that are there that you're saving, and then you have this really dense um, object of, of of text that you're trying to then read as if you're you know a naive reader for the first time. Very difficult. So so you know, props to all the editors out there who do the fine tooth. Uh, the fine-tuned uh, reading at the last minute for these publishers who, you know, have already made lots and lots of changes and have given you maybe the final text, but maybe there'll be another final text. Uh, my own editing experience was with uh, Vincent Baker's Murderous Ghosts. I used to live in Western Mass, so I would game with Vincent and Meg Baker, and and I was one of the playtesters for Murderous Ghosts. I think he paid me like 50 bucks to edit that. And the, the main thing, I had about eight or nine corrections but the main thing is because that is a forking paths sort of game where it says okay if you um you get this outcome go to that page if you get this outcome go to that page that was my main job was to just say okay do when i go to page 56 is that actually the outcome of that thing and it was it was it was pretty well organized so the main thing i i said of course was you know 
Vincent, you have a very weird relationship with capitalization. And years later, he'll come, be, come back and make comments <laughs> to me about that this one offhand thing that I said about his capitalization. He's like, how do you like my capitals now? And I'm like, oh my. <laughs> I mean, it was just commenting, but no, I mean, you know, it, when, when you're talking about the individual voice, that's what, that, you know, when, you, when you're editing an RPG, you have to preserve the individual voice, the individual style, that is clearly the object of the writing while then letting, you know, again, the naive reader, the person who's just picked up the book to really effortlessly read the text. And that's the, that's the balance. Yeah. My fiance who I, I work with, with one of the games, we design games together, writes a lot of our copy. Like he writes a lot of the, of the words, the, the copy on the page. Um, and, uh, he writes the way he talks, which is not in sentences. It is in, it is in words. <laughs> and then it's, it's my job often to go back and interpret those words. I'm not saying he's a bad writer. I'm saying that his grammar is a little off and a little confusing sometimes. Um, and um, if you are a kind of writer who, you know, is like that, maybe you know that that's not one of your strengths as a de designer. It would really behoove you to hire an editor or to collaborate with somebody and, and profit share with somebody who does have a better grasp on what you're going for. And when you are doing that, it's it, you should sit down with them. Don't just give them the thing and say, here, have at it. Make sure that they know what kind of tone you're going for, what kind of style you're going for, um, and and any other style notes that you have, um, especially if you have like weird um, fantasy names or names like that, really any names in general, make sure that if they repeat often, you you know how you want them to be spelled so they don't get um, either smashed up in autocorrect or um, accidentally changed or make your editor confused. Um, yeah, copy editors typically will um, charged by word just like a writer would um and um whereas uh someone who's working at, uh, on it from a i've never used this 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 terminology you used before craig because i've always just done copy and line editing developmental editor right. they'll probably charge by by page typically or like per hour it depends on like what they're doing um but uh it's 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 worth it though because again you will make your text look better better and you might find out that you accidentally copy and pasted the same paragraph twice which you know if you're you've been working on this game for days and days and weeks and weeks your brain won't process that it's it's old information brains don't like old information they're going to miss it yeah well get another set of eyes and that's that's you as the writer like you you fill in the gaps you'll note you won't notice that something is missing because mm -hmm. you know the game so well that you fill in the gaps a note on uh uh um the tone comment that people were making before too is like i i had um in in die laughing um i take a mildly um cranky tone with the reader every so often like there's like a joke you know, like the because like, it, it is intended to be a humorous game so like the the text of the read is kind of like you know you know figure out who goes first i'm not your mom you know like i, right. I do stuff like that um and i had the editor point out like you you don't make a snarky comment for like seven pages do you want to add a snarky comment um and so like that sort of thing is is handy to know about mm -hmm. um 
just some other things for for you as the writer to keep in mind that can help to make the editor's jobs a little easier. Oh, quick aside too on developmental editing. I know it sounds like you like three types of editing and that's, that gets pretty crazy. Um, development, developmental editing is not necessarily required for the entire book. Um, it's most important in the rules and anything that's very complex. Um, right. You know, you could have the, de- the developmental editor take a, take a glance at your setting information and, ju- and just suggest like they might they might say well you might want to have the you know important locations come before the people because when you describe these people you talk about these locations that they're associated with like they may just make you know ge- a general comment about like you know rearrange this mm-hmm. um but rules that's where de- developmental editing kind of lives um I, 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 I actually you you forced me to pull up my heavy metal party larp slayer cakes uh, <laughs> uh text because it because it has such a unique voice I, can we swear on this podcast sure wanna... okay yeah so so again you know you, you you go past the title page and the first page is where am i wtf is this shit <laughs> and, and 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 so this is actually the the, the the page in which i say things like you know here are the inspirations of this game here's what, how much time i take but i don't deliver that information information uh straight right so mm-hmm. you know like you know i say it, when it says how long will this game laugh i say it'll take about four hours maybe 20 minutes of setup time 20 30 cent minutes of like take down and chill out debriefy time right and 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 so i was just like trying to embody this like jack black like rocker kind of tone to the point where you know when we get to the point where it says supplies right what do you need to run this larp it says oh shit you're actually serious about running this thing are you okay right right and and and, and so it's it's a dialogue and i you know i kind of submitted this to an editor and said you know take a look at this so they 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 made no stylistic change a lot all of it was like okay it's sort of developmental or or structural editing as as uh as as craig was describing it where it says okay you 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 mention this thing on page three, but that that, that, that you don't define it till page five, and yeah. and 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 they were not they were not they're not correcting my f bombs. They were not correcting like <laughs> sort of sort of sort of this 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 crazy tonal wandering because they understood that was that was the vision of the game. And 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 also your editor, I, I should they're also a reader. So are, are they entertained? Right? Are they? with it are they following the the vibe of your game and and that's going to be a really good sign if they are yeah and that's it's so important too you hit on a really important point that the engagement of the reader is so important a lot of these rule books will present their rules as extremely dry and that even if you're not meaning to even if you have like the coolest setting and and interesting uh, evocative rules if you're presenting it in a very dry style and tone and um, then you do that and then you do this and then you add this mm-hmm. plus that um and it's all in you know a 17 line paragraph yeah that just feels like a drone it yeah. just it just feels like a chore to read um one thing uh just a few things that you as a writer can do that will like you'll you'll hand over a manuscript that'll be cleaner and the editor will be a little more impressed with you and it'll it'll save them time um is um, passive voice does not want to be used <laughs> is a sentence that uses the passive voice. Um, so, you know, just try to keep in mind that whenever you're describing something as much as possible, there is there are times when passive voice is important, but a lot of times, you know, most of the time, the, the subject should be doing something, not being acted upon in some way. Um, 
read out loud. I've mm-hmm. I've started doing that lately. Um, when I'm reading sections where, especially where it's um, like there's technical stuff, like where, you, where the rule stuff, I'll read it out loud to myself and see how it flows and reads. Because like instructions are, you know, the rules is in, are instructions, and the instructions are hard harder to parse and and um, uh, assimilate into your brain the way it is, just because it's more technical information rather than just like, oh, look at this lovely world. Um, mm-hmm. It'll help so you figure out that flow. Reading, too. reading, reading it out loud will help because you'll you'll find the choppy bits where like this doesn't yeah. transition well. Like this, like there needs to be another sentence in here, or maybe this needs to be written differently. I um, tell my students to read out loud, and if I get if I get writing that I can tell, like a bunch of my class hasn't actually read their stuff out loud, I make them record themselves reading it out loud and send it to me. Speaking it's evil. Out. Speaking to <laughs> speaking to our topic coming up a little bit later, which we'll have to do with movies, um, it's what table reads are for for movies. Like they want to hear the people, they want to hear the actor who's going to be speaking the line saying the lines, so they know how that actor is going to deliver it and does it make sense. And so, like there might be revisions that take place there because of that's part of what the table read is for. Um, set it aside and come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can always be really handy. Like if you've got if you've got the time. Um, if you're not on a timeline, like you just set, set some stuff aside, come back to it fresh, work on something else, work on a different part of the book, uh, you know, uh, assimilate playtesting feedback or whatever. Um, and then, and just like completely set it aside. Don't touch it for like two weeks if you can, and just come back and then read it anew. Um, that can be very handy because reading it over and over, checking, looking constantly for the errors. Again, your brain is going to fill in the gaps because you know the game so well. Um, I, I, I also, I, I've got a, uh, idea of what is called the primal scene of reading in my mind when I'm writing a text, right? Who is reading? Who's my ideal reader reading this text? What position are they in? Are they reading on an e-reader? Are they reading frantically off a document at a convention? Are they reading <laughs> aloud? Are they going to read this document aloud? Are they going to read it, um, you know, alone at home? And, and, and really, again, this is sort of like cozy text versus functional text and, um, and, and, and really, again, imagine, imagine someone not you opening up this PDF or even better, opening up your book um, and, and come up with a few scenarios when they might do that. And imagine that experience. And, and it begin, you begin to, first of all, remove a lot of your words, like period. You realize you don't want this chunky block of, of, of gobbledygook there. And so you, you just start you know, paring things down because, you know, that cozy reader is going to get bored after seven minutes or they're going to go up and, you know, get a, get another cozy coffee or something like that. But, you know, you, 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 you have to, again, think about the kind of rhythms of reading, reading in, in almost a biological or cultural sense. Um, and this will only help to, to a certain extent with certain, you know, depending on the language and, and what's available to you. But um, I have, I, I have seen just in the past five years that I've been writing a lot of stuff. Well, you know, in ten years with with, with a lot of my freelance before, um, grammar checkers both in your software and online have become ridiculously helpful. They've gotten so much better at finding so things. So much better. Hemingwayapp.com yes. is spectacular. Pay, co- copy paste your text in there. It will tell you, hey, look at all these adverbs that you can get rid of because adverbs yes. just eat up space. You can you can, you can, can get the point across with, uh, with a single word, with the right adjective, where, 
instead of having you know instead of tacking an adverb onto something it, it points out passive voice a lot of, it, it catches a lot of that um, it finds simpler alternatives like where you use kind of clunky too many word phrases where you could like one or two words would do um, and it'll point out you know like run-ons and and things that seem hard to read like t- overly complex sentences too many commas and semicolons and mm-hmm. too much information conveyed um, yeah they that and, app really like tries to capture a, a simplistic kind of style so it does have a bias toward a more simplistic style um so if you are trying to write in a very like tolkien-esque high fantasy type of way it's gonna hate you but it is a good way to kind of see if you're actually sure. going for that but it also catches a lot of things like repetitive where it'll catch stuff like that it'll catch passive voice which a lot of grammar checkers won't look at um unless you get a premium version of like grammarly so um, and, I love and, Hemingway. And, and, I'm so glad you brought that up. Ultimately, ultimately, you have to make the choice, as Evan was talking about. Like, you know, how do you expect the book to be read? If if you've got a 350 page nine point font tome that is like <laughs> you're envisioning, generally speaking, the, the 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 purchasers are going to be sitting down and kind of just absorbing it over the course of multiple reading sessions in the evening, and they're just going to let themselves get immersed in the world. Yeah, go Tolkien. Go like have have long ass sentences and 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 really really you know explore words and use 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 your verbiage but if you've got a game that's going to be 100 pages long um and you know you want to kind of keep it tight and simple and and to the point you've got uh, some of these tools that are available to do to help you do that and i I think it's important just overall to know that editing is a process just like writing is a process it's not a thing you do at the end of your book and then you're done you anytime you're going back and looking at your work you're engaging in some sort of editing anytime you are showing your book to somebody else you're engaging in a type of editing um it it is it is a a process that will often take longer than the writing process itself um, because part of the writing process is the editing process so um take your time with it um, and don't rush it if you have that time i mean it's it will make your writing glow. Put that shine on. There you go. And, uh, hmm. Evan? Switching yeah, gears. I, yeah, let, let's go to, let's go to the would, final would, gear. Would you like to yes. take us on a deep dive into the world of cult cinema? Which I was really interested to hear what you had to say about. Um, I'm not a huge cult cinema person. I've got, you know, kind of stuff that I am into, um, you know, like as, in as much as cult cinema, um, kind of also the, the Venn diagram between cult cinema and like movies that are so bad they're fun, um, right. you know, does, does have a fair bit of overlap. That's kind of where I live. But uh, Evan, go ahead. Let's, let's talk cult cinema. Yeah, let's talk cult cinema. I, I think one thing is, is important um, when, whenever you're dealing with a work of art or even mass art is that somebody made this, right? Somebody had to make some decisions to get this to, to, uh, to be uh, before you. And, in, um, and that, that process is messy, often awful um you know done often in uh, under duress or time constraints and other sorts of equipment and constraints and then finally of course the producer or a major distributor says i don't like x and there there are further changes to be made so 
Um, you know, if you look at a thousand different film histories, you're going to look at a thousand different unique stories about how a cultural product emerged from uh, an idea. And, um, and, and with that, you know, you get, uh, let, 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 let's rattle off some favorites. Mono's Hands of Fate. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> one of the worst horror movies ever uh, contains many scenes of you know the, the the salesman who's at sort of at the center of the plot uh moving his briefcase from the house to the car and then from the car to the house <laughs> uh it, it, what i always like to say is you know the the guts of your movie is whatever you spend a lot of time with so that movie which is supposed to be a horror movie is actually very much about moving the briefcase uh, <laughs> it, 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 just from from sort of horrible editing decisions right or plan nine from outer space where the plan is to uh use um you know a uh alien technology to reanimate dead corpses uh in an effort of course to harness the power of solonite which is the um uh the explosive that ignites even particles of the sun, right? <laughs> and, and, and will lead lead down light trails to then explode whole suns. Uh, and this is still again delivered in some cheap sets in 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 you know classic uh, Ed Wood fashion. I mean, I mean, you know that that film you know is is so popular as kind of a, a cult uh, cinema piece because ultimately when 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 people are having conversations it's it, it, it's the actual conversations in that movie that are just completely unnatural um you know just people trying to talk about normal stuff uh it just doesn't work um you know you have a detective who's scratching his face with his gun because it's a gun is a prop obviously and so <laughs> it, it, why wouldn't he scratch his face with a gun right and 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 so there's there's a um uh one 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 thing that really demarcates these these kinds of bad movies as as uh, remarkable is is what they spend time with that they probably shouldn't uh, mm. spend time with and 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 indulge in anyway. You know, in film studies, Kristen Thompson has a uh, has a concept called excess, which is okay. Once you like pare down your script and get it all nice and neat and edit it really, so it's it's just the material but then you have like this weird sex scene that doesn't actually make any sense but someone's just indulging something or then you get this like you know you get the um the the really long musical dance number at the end of the zadoichi film from i think it's 2001 you're like what's going on here and of course it has to do with like traditional japanese studio conventions but it just doesn't make any sense you've, you've watched you know, almost two hours of a, a blind swordsman decapitating people, and, and now and now we have a musical number. Uh, great, uh, right? And but 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 actually, those are the moments I live for as a, as a film scholar. Is really the, the the thing that doesn't line up, or you don't quite digest it, and you're like, huh, okay, yeah. Is all cult cinema bad? Is like is is it all bad cinema? No, like, how would you define it? No, not at all. Cult cinema is uh, the, the, the easiest definition of, of cult cinema is um, uh, films that enjoy a long term audience um, that's disproportionate or even, you know, kind of out of balance from the, the typical 
um, audience cycles for a particular product, right? So what that means is, you know, you're, you, you have a film release or ticket sales, it, it goes out of cinema, then it has a like slightly longer um, afterlife and, and there you go. Um, but a cult cinema film is one that where there are festivals that people go and still watch the thing, AKA Big Lebowski or Twin Peaks. Uh, there are, um, y- you know, like ranting discussion <laughs> boards that are like, this thing is so great. Oh my gosh. And so oftentimes it's a combination of bad films because again, if it even like, you know, makes it to DVD um, or, or to streaming and is still pretty awful. Um, it has, it has, it has this like, you know, this audience rating, right? People, people are still watching this. Why are they watching this thing? That's bad. Um, Mm. or why are they watching this thing that is just historically irrelevant? Mm. So I I, I was going to say, I study communist cinema, right? And (laughs) communist cinema is all cult cinema now because none of that exists anymore. Right. So what do we do with that? Craig. Speaking of that thing, um, just a great, uh, uh, example of a movie that is, uh, uh, is beloved and everybody kind of agrees now is really a great movie, but was a gigantic box office bomb was the thing. John Carpenter's yeah, the absolutely. thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it came out right after ET. And so like, here's another alien movie and everybody said, Oh, wonderful. I'll go see another movie about an alien. And they were like, what's going on? And the critics just crushed it. Um, and the thing, the thing floundered in obscurity for many years until it kind of found a second life on, on, on VHS and became like, and now like it's, I, I would argue it certainly, you could call, you can call it cult, cult classic, but I think there's plenty of people that wouldn't even think of it as being cult, cl- a cult classic anymore because it's just considered by, um, a lot of horror aficionados in particular and, and film, hist- film historians, um, and film making um, historians as being a pivotal uh, movie in terms of special effects and, and some of the things that it did do um, incredibly well. Yeah, um, even I, I, even though even though the story is thin. <laughs> also, that year, uh, Tron is the other one. Uh, Disney's mm. Tron was supposed to be again this this you know, and again it had all, all these ba- boundary breaking uh, computer generated imagery sequences. You know, they had to fill up multiple. Uh, trailer trucks filled with you know matte drawings in order to do some of these these special effects wild wild experimentation absolutely flopped at the box office um you know, so much so, so that it took you know three decades to see a sequel right yeah so because so, it's and, become and, beloved yeah and, and, and brian lisberger right you know his his career was total right i mean in 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 sort of the mid 80s it just died and he went to just making pots in his home. Right? <laughs> well, the the only reason John Carpenter managed to continue making movies um, after the Thing Bomb was because he was working in horror. Yeah. And if the the people in the horror realm in the in the world of horror horror film like who ma- making horror films um, recognize like oh this this guy has it together he made a really great movie and it you know it just didn't do well. Um, and horror movies are notoriously, generally speaking, notoriously inexpensive to make um and you know some they make their budget back um pretty easily yeah i i'm not by no means an expert or anything but it seems like a lot of these cult like these cult films center around a particular like viewership like horror fans you know we 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 cling to like 
the the silly and 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 the the out there and and any any anything like that like or really good small movies that flopped um that people just don't appreciate because people just don't appreciate the genre of horror the way that they should um or around things like i don't know i'm I'm thinking of my roommate who was really really into repo the genetic opera um and i feel like that is a very like i don't know how to describe that fan base or that type of person but it certainly has that appeal to that type of person so no matter how that movie is or how the music is or whatever it, it is going to get a following it seems like uh, i think there are just some movies that, that key into not the zeitgeist but like the personalities of the viewers almost i i star wars like did it i mean i wouldn't consider that necessarily a, i don't know is it cult cinema but you know no <laughs> pretty pretty big blockbuster but, but, but people i know but people take it as like even part of their personality like there are these these movies that just like people like grab onto you well, know I, I think the 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 big difference well first of all i think cult cinema tends to skew towards genre movies um and because it skews towards genre it skews toward rabid fan bases and that's how they become cult is because there is this this subset of people that are just looking for like the great science fiction movie that people kind of missed um mm-hmm. or horror or fantasy or whatever um and uh, and then the difference between like you know Star Wars is incredibly popular and has this like pe- where like you said people take like they they, they incorporate it into the personality they talk about themselves as being Jedi and um, uh, the Jedi's a religion in, in the UK um, and the difference when you get to like for example something like the Big Lebowski is and in its community of dudes and dudettes and uh, and duders and duderinos and you know what have you. Um, is is that the the Big Lebowski isn't just you know, it's kind of a niche movie because it's a Coen Brothers movie to begin with, and it wasn't necessarily the uh, the one that one of the, it wasn't one of the big ones like Fargo, um, or Raising Arizona where they became you know they got they really got noticed and it kind of flew under the radar and it but it's it's it has this thing that just kind of resonated with people, um, like I I, I find it it's interesting. The most the most interesting cult films to me are the ones that sort of defy those expectations of genre of being genre movies. Um, one that I got into like not really as I mean I, I got it, I got into it when as soon as it came out on VHS, a friend of mine introduced me to it. This is back in the day when that's how you found your cult cinema, right? Was um, was Donnie Darko, which is it has elements of of science fiction in it, but it, it's effectively a drama. Uh, more or less a teen drama, teen drama, but it is so wickedly cerebral and weird, and confusing and open to interpretation that people didn't know what to make of it when the movie came out, um, and it only kind of became like this uh, this cultural phenomenon um, with with a subset of people who found this thing like you know like what, what do you think really happened like you know what <laughs> what do all these different components that take place did did was did, did did everything happen, actually happen to donnie like what order did things actually happen in um and all of that sort of thing well, i know we're at nine o'clock but i'm gonna gonna still I, I can rant about this forever so i'm gonna at least say 
we can periodize the cult cinema even to 1980s on because of the VHS tape and then mm-hmm. later the DVD. Um, uh, earlier, you had what you called cinephiles and uh, who, who had a different practice, which was effectively, and this is where film studies come from, you would make a long list of movies. You would say, okay, this one is coming to this theater in Paris or this, you know, because, because you, you didn't have tapes, so people would have to chase after them and chase after 35 millimeter or 16 millimeter prints right and and screenings thereof or or go to the archives um which which back then were not very you know robust and made for researchers so there you know that cinephile practice um was very different from it but 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 still you know you were you were looking you were looking for this the next thrill or the next experience and you weren't going to be able to see this film over and over again unless you specifically pursued it in the cinemas well you could do that with vhs you could just watch it over and over and over again and and show it to your friends and if you have a stack of like six vhs tapes suddenly the the tapes that stand out are the ones that make you feel weird things or that, that have something <laughs> some strange about them that you know and 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 it kind of interrupts that that um you know kind of mass consumption of of recorded material uh, I'm, I'm going to offer one of my favorite cult films, Meet the Feebles. Oh, Peter Jackson. Uh, by, by Peter Jackson. I've never even heard of it. <laughs> oh, boy. Go ahead. Tell her about it. So, so, so Meet the Feebles <laughs> is a sick puppet movie uh, created by Peter Jackson. It's in the filthy. 90s. It's profane. Okay. I was going to ask it's... you, like, what version of sick are we using? Yeah. yeah. So, so basically, there's, a, there's the Feebles Variety Hour, which is a corrupt Muppet establishment um, <laughs> run, run by a drug cartel with aging <laughs> and uh, horrifyingly insecure stars. And, and then in comes uh, Wobbert, the young head wide-eyed hedgehog into this den of corruption and he falls in love with uh lucille who is the the hippo um and hilarity ensues this is this is a really disgusting film and also one of my absolute favorites because peter jackson is a genius filmmaker and so he slowly ratches up the disgusting as well as you know certain dramatic and violent elements until it ends in an absolute well, I won't say, but it, it, it certainly ends spectacularly, and you, it, you you don't really know what to do with the experience, and it even has epilogues that kind of like you know point to the satire of the entire affair, and so, and of course, like the the the, the team behind this is Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh, who would then go on through the Lord of the Rings, right? <laughs> I mean, it's literally literally you know that that overlap and in fact when they announced they announced that peter jackson was going to be the lord of the rings director this is like 1999 and 2000 we're like yeah and 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 uh, he made uh, Brain Dead slash Dead Alive, which yeah, is uh, bad, uh, taste. The, the, oh, bad taste. Bad taste. You know, uh, Dead Alive <laughs> potentially the potentially the the bloodiest um, horror movie zombie ever made. Film, yeah. Um, a ridiculous yes. over the top <laughs> zombie film. Um, with uh, yeah. if you haven't seen it, go see it. Um, I I to this day I am thrilled that the guy who made. Bad Taste, Meet the Feebles, and Dead Alive also made Heavenly Creatures, and that's kind of why we have the Lord of the Rings that we know. 
Um, if, 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 if Peter Jackson had continued to make these things that were kind of funded by the New Zealand government and was just, they were just happy to have New Zealand filmmaking, um, that were, they, there, there was a lot of, uh, government involvement with getting some of these things made. And he was just making like things that he thought was just fun and silly and passion project and like, who cares? Um, but he ultimately, you know, I think made a couple of movies that <laughs> made people go, oh, okay. Okay. He this, made the this, Frighteners. The Frighteners. The fr- yeah. The Frighteners is good. Right. I like Frighteners. Heavenly yeah, Creatures. Yeah, yeah, Frighteners. Frighteners is a great example of a cult movie. It did terribly at the box office. It, it came the sa- came out the same year as Independence Day. And so Independence Day hit the theaters and were like, oh, man, they're blowing up the White House. They're blowing up the Empire State Building. Will Smith is punching aliens. And 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 just a few weeks later came this small, like, supernatural mystery thriller with Michael J. Fox. Michael J. Fox like, talking to a black disco ghost. And we're like, eh. yeah. <laughs> but, 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 man, does that movie sing. It's an absolute thrill to watch to this day and yeah, you can, so th- you can... thank you peter jackson for making a yeah. couple of movies after all the really wacky stuff um because it's it's you know it proved to people that uh oh this 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 filmmaker has chops and 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 he and fran walsh and um you know can can put together a, a great story right so in any case yeah I, I i could talk about these 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 things all all night but i definitely um you know, encourage people to to get get into the the weeds with with you know lists of cult movies and you know I've got actually just a uh, old lists of from 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 what was it the Pleasant Street Theater Video which is our old video store from uh, <laughs> you know it, before it closed in like two thousand nine or something and you know this is like foreign films one hundred one uh, best in black cinema. 100 erotic and provocative films (laughs) 100 overlooked gems and and so the old the old cinephile technique of just going down a list and watching stuff is not bad uh it's it it's actually you know and and uh and just kind of kind of seeing seeing where this takes you or saying okay i really like the style of that director or that that thing can i pursue more of that but I think our, our modern media ecosystem is terrible. And partially what I'm doing right now is looking through these lists and seeing what of this is actually still available on streaming or uh, anywhere, right? Right. Well, hey, there's... I'm, looking, I'm looking at a list of like the 50 best top cult movies and I'm like, that's not, everyone likes Bloodsport, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I love Bloodsport. But uh, yeah, I mean, early, early Jean-Claude Van Damme was very much... Um, before I mean, he got before he kind of got pulled into the big you know the the handful of big Hollywood movies that he did, kind of late a little later. Um, so many of these. The one thing I, I mean, I I was able to sort of be part of the you know find it on VHS or you know tell people about it and be able to get a hold of it on VHS um, aspect of cult cinema. And we talked about you talked about the cinephiles. The one other thing that was kind of there, which wasn't really so much seeking out specific movies, but it was seeking out. A broad category of movies, and these are these are dead and gone now too. Is in bigger cities, you had the grindhouse theaters, where if you were a fan of old uh, black exploitation movies, or incredibly gory action movies, or um, you know, pardon me, Jess, women in prison movies, <laughs> um, which were a thing for uh, a good long while, um, you know, you could you could find those in these like little hole in the wall theaters where they, they they just there was only a handful of prints of the movies and they just they just made their way around the country or around the world wherever they were 
um, and you know, eventually got you know the the film got the celluloid got so degraded that it was you know it was like kind of a horrible <laughs> viewing experience. <laughs> but knowing that you were watching like watching that film that looks so bad and it's full of scratches and maybe is even you know even missing a chunk of film or a whole reel. Um, just goes to tell you that like you know you are part of this crowd of people who has seen this thing because it's just been played to death um in these little types of movies and um if 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 you want to know what a grindhouse movie might actually look like there you know there was the Robert Rodriguez, Quentin Tarantino, double feature Grindhouse, Mm -hmm. um, which sought to kind of recreate that, but in a stylized way. Um, And, you know, it's kind of there, you know, like the the experience is kind of there. It's just orchestrated rather than just happenstance. And those movies are called classics. Yes, those are called classics. I I, I was also thinking, yeah, yeah, right right now the Grindhouse films are are now called classics. but I was, I was also thinking because they, they um, bombed that 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 double feature bombed at the theaters. People went in, watched one movie, and left. Yeah, I uh, I watched, and then I, found I out later that they were supposed people, to watch two. Yeah, <laughs> I I went with my friend with uh, with a friend of mine, and we went. and We knew what we were getting into. Yeah, for a four hour experience, and we you know watched the first movie and got a break and watched the fake trailers, and then. <laughs> watch the second movie they, they, they were there were also the the uh the the phenomenon of like vhs uh mixtapes where you you would you know they, they, they were sort of mashup tapes that people you know and you're used to these kinds of supercuts on youtube now but that that whole art form uh started with people taping random stuff off of tv and then putting it all together into a weird mixtape and then some like, you know yeah. somehow getting it into rental stores all and I, these I, here's here's a tape that's just full of great zombie kills from like uh, yeah. 30 different movies you can yeah. find the for the record if you go looking on some of it amazon to an extent but if you go looking on some of the things like you know the like the free streaming services like tubi um and some of those, if you go digging around some of those weird streaming services that are free that don't have a lot of like big name anything on there, you can find like little things that are like, you know, 30 great horror movies. And all it is is just going to be like, it's a few scenes from this movie that you probably won't ever be able to find the whole movie. It's entirely possible that there isn't a complete print anywhere, but they have pieces of it that, the, that they've strung together with a bunch of other movies. Yeah, I um, was a child during the the end of the VHS days. Uh, Evan, you mentioned that you have been in gaming since 1991, and that is my birth year. So... (laughs) We're all on a journey. (laughs) We're all on a journey, that's that's true. Everybody's journey starts on a different day. Yeah, I mean, mean, like, you know, it's not like I'm, like, superior for having been on that VHS era. No, no, I I find that fascinating. it, 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 It was a different sort of culture where you really did have to kind of like track down these different tapes or go to like mail order services in in german uh film for example um it was almost impossible to get nazi films in germany because all of that stuff was banned right. but extremely easy to get it through sketchy ass people on websites in <laughs> the united states in fact they had a very dubiously large collection of nazi cinema wonder... all, all, all available and 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 that built an entire field of of nazi film studies right and and where we could find not just triumph of the will or kind of the major titles but everything because some 
I will say this, neo-Nazis were preserving them on VHS uh, during, during the 80s and 90s. And, mm -hmm. and that then we were trying to, you know, do that much more respectively with the East German f f films, so of like former East Germany. And that, of course, like took money mm -hmm. and took investments of scholars and uh, various, you know, we, we realize it's this like, you know, big investment. And then you just stare at the, 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 this like, again, cult film collection of Nazi war footage and Nazi entertainment films. You're like, how did this operation, huh? What is going <laughs> on? You, you, just, you just have lots of questions, right? But, but that eventually, you know, if, especially if you're interested in a particularly obscure area of film, you just have to like become comfortable with whatever cult has emerged around that thing in order for you to, to consume it. So I, I watch a lot of these films with old communists, uh, you know, 70 year old, 80 year old men uh, who, who were there and, uh, and, and I love it, but you know, it's not for everybody. So uh, yeah, it's, and, and, and of course, you know, you, you have to kind of straddle between what you believe, what their believe, the, the history of the period and all the, these different other things. And, and uh, I find that process enjoyable. A lot of my students say, ah, oh, this thing is in black and white. Why would anyone watch it? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I loved the, the one cinema class I took. It was a French cinema class because um, I was a French major and we watched a bunch of French films. And one of those French films is on that cult classic list, La N. Uh, mm -hmm. which I love that movie so much. Um, but it's, it's, it's great kind of seeing film as, uh, as history, because it is, I mean, it's, it's, it's a documentation of history just as much as any art or book is. Yeah. Yeah, and, 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 and again, you know, we in film studies are like, oh, cinema is pretty much dead. Uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, and so what we're looking at is this kind of, you know, strange digital afterlife thing that actually is enjoyable in its own right, but it's not cinema. And we're, we're, ha we're happy to be alive and we're happy to be part of whatever's going on. We're not going to pretend that things are not are ever going to go back to the way they were, but we can at least preserve the living memory of, you know, the materiality of, of, of film and of VHS and, and, uh, and remind people that, that things can or have been different in the past. Everything has its own journey, even filmmaking. Right. Well, it's been a pleasure, Evan, listening to your <laughs> your conversations here on on cult cinema, and I've learned a lot. So thank you for sharing all of that. And well, I'm I'm excited to see Moonpunk, uh, and <laughs> and I'm I'm looking forward to to Craig's secret project. Ooh, as well. secret project. Um, Evan, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you in the social medias should they want to kind of see what you're up to? My central location is Twitter right now. So you can find me at Guy in Black Hat. Uh, that's my Twitter handle. And, and um, I, uh, you know, also co-run the Golden Cobra contest. So you can go to goldencobra.org and find a whole 
great back catalog of several years worth of games there uh, that are quite strange and so, some are even award-winning, right? So I'm really happy <laughs> to be part of that. And strange and award-winning. Strange and award-winning, yeah. It, it, it wouldn't have it any other way. And then also the our journal, analoggamestudies.org, uh, which is, uh, again, sort of critical analysis of, of modern board card and role-playing games and LARP. It's just, uh, it's a pleasure to be a part of that institution and uh, people should read our stuff. Awesome. You, you can find me on Twitter at Joska. <laughs> J-A-W-S-K-A. -J yes. <laughs> think, think Jaws and Ska. Mm -hmm. With only one S. Right. <laughs> Joska. Uh, Joska. <laughs> Um, and you can find me at nerdburgergames.com. Um, you know, game stuff is uh, uh, also on DriveThruRPG, and I'm at NerdburgerCraig on Twitter. So I think with that, we're going to call this an episode. Yeah, cool. Bye. Thanks again, Evan. Thank you for having me. This is great.